Thanks to this season's presenting sponsor, Driscoll's. Only the finest berries. Hello, young chefs, and welcome back to Mystery Recipe. I'm Molly Birnbaum, Editor-in-Chief of America's Test Kitchen Kits. And I'm Mitzi. I've met Molly's right-hand gal, and I will be your tour guide for today. You will? Oh, no, your co-host. Sorry, I'm getting my gigs confused here. Every week on Mystery Recipe, we'll be talking about the fun, fantastical, and fascinating sides of a different kitchen ingredient. Plus, at the end of the season, we'll use all the ingredients to cook a mystery recipe together. Can you guess what it is yet? So far, we know it will contain water, brown sugar, walnuts, oats, crisped rice cereal, dried apricots, and dried cranberries. You might have a pretty good idea of what we're making so far. Any guesses? Today is day two of Cranberry Week. That's right, and we are going to get bogged down with facts and tricky trivia, followed by a holiday conversation in Ask a Grown-Up. And to round off today's episode, our friend Andrea is back to help us do some measuring in how-to time. Molly, I've got another tour group coming in five minutes. Do you mind if we head to that theme? Gotta keep things moving today. A tour group? I'll explain, but first, to the theme song! Looks good. I bet it tastes good. Your dad is Mitt Romney? Mystery recipe. So, Mitzi, you're a tour guide now? I am. The test kitchen here at ATK is such a magical place that I decided I wanted to share it with as many people as possible. So I am going to be giving tours of the kitchen and podcast studio twice a day. That sounds like a lot of work. I know, Molly, but it's a side hustle. It's supposed to be a lot of work. Are you making money off of these tours? Oh, of course not. They're free. Then I don't really know if that's a side hustle, Mitzi. I think side hustles are something you make money off of. Oh, I thought they were just something you spend all your free time doing. I think that's just a hobby, Mitzi. Meg! Hey, Meg. Hi, friends. Let's see. Here's my mic. Testing, testing. Uno, dos, tres. Excelente. Meggie Eggie is in the building. Hooray! So, what are you spending all your free time doing, Mitzi? Well, Mitzi just started giving tours of the office. Me gusta! I like it. I'll go on a Mitzi tour of America's Test Kitchen. How do I sign up? Really? Oh, that's great, Meg. I would love to have you join us. Let's see. I think we just had one other person signed up for this next tour, but they don't seem to be here yet. That's okay. Do you know who it is? No, they just wrote their name as special guest, which is like, come on. All my tour guests are special, buddy. Calm down. Well, while we wait, maybe Molly and I can knock out our first segment? Sounds like a good use of time to me. Perfect. It's time for Tricky Trivia. Here's how it's going to work. Meg, I will give you a fact all about our ingredient theme for the week, and you get to help our listeners decide if it is true or false. You can count on me! Here's your first one. True or false, cranberries are the most acidic fruit. So, Meg, what do you think? Are cranberries the most acidic fruit? Hmm, good one, Molly. Listeners, acids are chemical compounds that make food taste sour. Basically, every food we eat has some acidity. 
but some foods are more acidic than others. I know that cranberries are very tart when you eat them raw, but they aren't the first food that comes to mind when I think of sour acidic fruits. When I think sour, I immediately think of lemons. Not knocking lemons, but they are so tart. So, based on my own personal experiences, I think that lemons are more acidic than cranberries. I'm going to say that this is false. Cranberries are not the most acidic fruit. That's correct. Great job, Meg. Cranberries are not the most acidic fruit, but they are the third most acidic fruit. Lemons and limes are the two most acidic fruits. All right. Fruit facts are fabulous. Few facts are more fantastic. Ready for your next one? Totally. True or false, the average can of cranberry sauce is made with more than 500 cranberries. So Meg, what do you think? Are more than 500 cranberries used to make a can of cranberry sauce? Well, I'm a bit torn. I really want to get this one right, given that counting is, you know, something I was literally made to do. I know it's not an easy one, and don't worry if you don't get it, Meg. You're great at counting time, but it's okay if you're not great at counting everything. I know, you're right. I mean, you want me to time how long your cranberry sauce simmers on the stove for? I'm your gal. But I think I'm going to have to take a guess here. What's your best guess? I'm going to say false. It does not take 500 cranberries to make a can of cranberry sauce. Even though I think it probably takes a lot of cranberries, I don't think it takes quite that many. Correct again. On average, it takes about 200 cranberries to make a can of cranberry sauce. I'm on a roll. Still, that's a lot more cranberries than I would expect. That's true. I was surprised to learn this one as well. Okay, Meg, last question. True or false, cranberries are only harvested by flooding the fields they grow in. What do you think? Are cranberries only harvested when the fields are flooded? Hmm. Most of the time, when I think of cranberries getting harvested, people describe what you just said. And I heard Granberry talk about cranberries in the last episode. Plus, we've already had two false answers today, and I don't think you'll make the last answer false, too. I think I'm going to say true. Cranberries are only harvested when their fields are flooded. That one is actually false again. <gasps> I've been out-tricked! Well, lots of cranberries are harvested that way in the United States in a process called wet harvesting. Some are dry harvested. Cranberries that are dry harvested are usually the ones that are sold raw, while the wet harvested cranberries usually get turned into juice, cranberry sauce, and other cranberry products. Well, when you put it that way, it doesn't seem all that tricky. Sometimes I think we all out-trick ourselves. Well, nice work on tricky trivia today, Meg. Gracias. Thank you. That was a fun one. Oh, I hear someone walking over to the studio. Maybe it's time for our tour. I hope so. Whoever special guest is, they are about to be especially late guest. Hi, friends. Chad here. Aw, it's Chad. Oh man, just Chad? Cool. Well, I guess I can just go then. No, we're sorry, Chad. Of course we're happy to see you. We are just waiting for someone named Special Guest to come so Mitzi can give us a tour of the office. 
Oh, well, that's cool that you're giving tours, Mitzi. Thanks, it's my side hustle. But if you're here, Chad, then it's probably time for Ask a Grown-Up. That's right. Today we are talking to someone about cranberry harvests. Excited for that. First, it's time for a quick word from our sponsors. Grown-Ups, these ads are for you. Hey, grown-ups. I wanted to tell you about one of our cookbooks, Gabby's Latin American Kitchen. Has your young chef ever tried empanadas, made cheesy arepas for your family, or shared homemade sprinkle-covered chocolate brigaderos with their friends? You can travel through Latin America together with your child through 70 recipes developed and written by Gabby Melian. All kid-tested and kid-approved by America's Test Kitchen Kids panel of over 15,000 at-home kid recipe testers. Plus, the Spanish-language glossary, fun personal stories, and peek into Gabby's own kitchen give this book important cultural context and make your learning experience extend far past the meal. It's a delicious win for all young chefs and their families. You can find Gabby's Latin American Kitchen everywhere that books are sold. Hey, grown-ups! Open a world of new taste with Kitchen Adventures, a monthly subscription of globally inspired recipes and activities for your young chef. Every month, try three to six kid-tested, kid-approved recipes from America's Test Kitchen Kids. And celebrate world foods with hands-on activities from award-winning children's brand Little Passports. Twist up the delicious flavors of Rome, Italy. Sample the mouth-watering delights of El Paso, Texas. Tour the tastes of Punjab, India, and more. Play, cook, and connect with Kitchen Adventures. Order yours today at littlepassports.com. And we are back. Hooray! And special guest is still not here yet. That's true, but I have a very special guest of my own for this Ask a Grown-Up segment. Take it away, Chad. Thanks, Molly. So, since it's Cranberry Week, and this episode will originally air right before Thanksgiving, I wanted to talk about this very special holiday. Thanksgiving is a national holiday here in the U.S., and it takes place on the fourth Thursday in November. In order to find out more about its history, I went to the source of the very first Thanksgiving feast. Welcome. You are talking to Plymouth Patuxet Museums. So we are what is known as a living history museum, which is a really fun kind of museum. Essentially, we teach history by recreating immersive historical environments. So when you visit us, you can feel like you're stepping back in time. This is Malka Benjamin. And I am the Associate Director for Historic Sites and Guest Experience. And she was joined by her coworker, Melissa Costa. My name is Melissa Costa. I'm from the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe. The Plymouth Pawtuxet Museum is always very busy around this time of year because Plymouth, Massachusetts is where what some would call the first Thanksgiving took place. You may have heard this story in school. It's often described as a group of English pilgrims coming together with some of the indigenous Wampanoag people to celebrate a large harvest with lots of great food and crops that would last them through the winter. But historians at the Plymouth Pawtuxet Museum share a slightly different story. Here's Malka to tell us more. So one of the the big things we try to do as as colleagues and at the museum is try to flip the script on the story a little bit and, and look at what actually happened in 1621. 
when people learn about that, they often think that there was a whole bunch of pilgrims and a few native people. But what we think is that that event had many more native people than previously thought. In reality, very few pilgrims in comparison. And we think it's very likely that there were native women and children present, which has never really been talked about before. So we try to paint a much more nuanced story. We try to tell a a story with greater detail and consideration. And Melissa, who is from the Wampanoag tribe, celebrates Thanksgiving at the museum or home site a little bit differently. It's not a day where we're like, hey, today's Thanksgiving, we're going to all sit down because traditionally Wampanoag people did have Harvest Fest, but we wouldn't all sit down every day to have a dinner. We have Harvest Fest. Um, We celebrate a couple of different things. We'll celebrate strawberries. We'll celebrate a harvest of cranberries or winter. And one of the things that is really cool here is you'll see us cooking all these traditional dishes, but we're not doing it in the sense of Thanksgiving like we do today. On the site, we do it more of a day-to-day. Today, we often think of Thanksgiving as the name of a holiday. But if you break that word down, it just means a moment where you're giving thanks. And the Wampanoag people traditionally have many Thanksgivings or harvest fests. There is a strawberry harvest fest, a green corn harvest fest. Melissa told me a little bit about their cranberry harvest celebration. Most likely, tons of food scented around cranberries, of course, lots of cranberry jams. They're going to eat a bunch of them fresh, very tart, delicious. And we're also going to dry them out on large woven mats in the sun. And that way we can save them for over the winter and add them into lots of different dishes, like a cornmeal dish called nasamp, which is dried crushed corn with cranberries. You can add in sunflower seeds maybe walnuts or maple sugar, whatever you want, but it's a delicious dish. But while Melissa and other Wampanoag people might celebrate multiple harvest fests, many modern indigenous people choose not to celebrate the U.S. holiday of Thanksgiving. For a lot of Native people, it would mark the beginning of the end for a lot of things, meaning, you know, for tribes along the East Coast were affected by the people that come over pretty quickly. And so... After Thanksgiving, it does start to really signify that the English are staying and that lots of other people are coming over. Basically, Native people are saying, well, we see this day as a day of mourning and a day that we sit back and reflect on things that happened to us as a nation. Because the reality of history is that pilgrims and colonizers from Holland and England often did not treat indigenous people fairly. Over the course of our country's history, they caused a lot of harm to the indigenous populations, their languages, and their cultures. Here's Malka to tell us more about how she deals with this reality as a historian. One of the things that I find really challenging as a historian when I'm studying the past is that people in the past often thought about the world differently than we do today. So one of the things that's really troubling when we study this history is that, for example, English people, you know, 400 years ago and leading to American colonists, you know, in the 1800s, 1700s, they thought that white Christian English people were better than everyone else. And they thought that, uh, so they were trying to make Wampanoag and other Native peoples more like them 
because they thought that was better. And so as historians, we are constantly trying to understand people's motivations in the past to help us understand their decisions. You don't have to agree with them. I hope you don't agree with many of the decisions that were made in the past, but it's important for us to try to understand why things were done the way they were. And so when guests come here at the museum on Thanksgiving, you'll see a lot of different things, like what Melissa was talking about on the historic Patuxet home site, learning about Wampanoag traditions of Thanksgiving, Mm -hmm. but also learning about why the modern American holiday of Thanksgiving is not necessarily celebrated by all Native people, which is an important history to learn about, too. Here's Melissa again. I think it's important if people do celebrate Thanksgiving, whatever state they live in, they should learn about the local Native tribes that are in their communities. And if they can, at least incorporate a Native dish from that community. And then reflect on being thankful that they're in the house and where they live, but also reflect on what they can do for those Native people. I think it's very important for them to kind of see what the local people are doing. I would also add that You know, that history in our shared past is what binds us together as a nation. Some of it is happy and some of it is sad and there's all different things, but we need to learn about that past so that we can know more and and do better moving forward. I agree. I agree too. Grownups, if you want to learn more about the English pilgrims or Wampanoag people of the early 1600s, you can check out the Plymouth Pawtuxet website at Plymouth.org. That's P-L-I-M-O-T-H dot org. There are great resources there for kids as well, including a fun game young chefs can play year-round called You Are the Historian. Back to you, Molly. Oh, someone else is coming! Hey, friends! Aw, man, it's just Andrea! Um, sorry, it's not just Andrea. It's Andrea! Thank you very much. We're just waiting for someone, Andrea, but they are very late. A very special late guest. But Andrea, I'm glad you're here. Me too. Thanks, Maggie. Listeners, Andrea is an associate editor at America's Test Kitchen Kids. That means she works on developing recipes and experiments for our cookbooks and website. You can find out more about all that fun stuff by going to atkkids.com. We want you to practice your cooking techniques while you're our intern. So every week, I'm going to teach you something new to up your arsenal of kitchen skills. So, Andrea, what are we working on today? I actually have another question for you, Maggie. I'm an open book, Andrea. Ask away. This week, I thought it would be a good idea to go over the best ways to measure different ingredients. Do you know how to do that? Claro que sí. Of course I do. Can I help teach our listeners at home again? That's exactly what I was thinking. You did such a great job helping me teach everyone about how to safely use a food processor. I thought it would be great if you could give me a hand again. Oh, I would love to. I'm like your teaching assistant. Yep. And together, we can teach a great lesson about a very important skill in the kitchen. Today, I want our listeners to learn how to measure both wet and dry ingredients. Even though that might seem self-explanatory, measuring correctly is very important when you're following a recipe. It's also important to use the right tools for the right ingredients, right, Andrea? It sure is, Meg. Okay, vamonos, let's go! Hello out there, listeners. Maggie Eggie here to tell you all about the tools you'll need to measure dry and wet ingredients. 
Before you talk about tools, Maggie, maybe it's a good idea to tell everyone what dry and wet ingredients are. Good thinking, Andrea. I'm getting ahead of myself. Dry ingredients are, well, dry. They can be things like flour, salt, oats, or sugar. Wet ingredients are wet. Some examples are water, milk, and vanilla extract. Great job. Okay, what tools should we use to measure wet and dry ingredients? I'm glad you asked, assistant. Wait, who's the assistant here? For dry ingredients, there are two main tools we use. Measuring spoons and dry measuring cups. How do you know which to use when? Another great question. You really are the best assistant a girl could ask for. Well, I've had some practice. This is my segment. So, measuring spoons are best for measuring small amounts of ingredients. Like if you're measuring spices, for example. Most measuring spoons come in sets with five or six different spoons. They come as small as one-eighth teaspoon and go all the way up to one tablespoon. What if I want to measure more than a tablespoon or two? Then you'd use dried measuring cups, metal or plastic cups with handles. Those also come in sets and typically go from one-fourth cup to one cup. They're good for measuring things like flour or sugar. That was a great explanation, Maggie. I would also add that you can use measuring spoons to measure small amounts of wet ingredients as well as dry ingredients, like a tablespoon of vinegar or a teaspoon of vanilla extract. Good point. Now for wet ingredients. Hang on. Before we move on, I just want to go over the dip and sweep method. Do you know what that is? Isn't that a technique for dunking cookies in milk? You dip it in the milk and then sweep it up and into your mouth before the milk drips. Not quite, but now I do want some cookies. The dip and sweep method I'm talking about is a way of measuring dry ingredients to make sure you're getting the right amount. But I thought that's what the cup is for or the spoon. Oh, it is. But in order to make sure that you've measured out the correct amount of an ingredient, you need to make sure that your cup or spoon is completely full, but not overflowing. Dip the measuring cup or spoon into the ingredient so it's filled up past the top, then use the back of a butter knife to sweep away the excess. That way you have exactly the right amount. Oh, that's a great trick. Thanks. Now, can you tell us about the tools we use to measure wet ingredients? I'd be happy to, Assistant Andrea. You're really taking this and running with it, huh? Running with what? For measuring wet or liquid ingredients like water or milk, you should use a liquid measuring cup. Those are clear plastic or glass cups with lines on the sides, a big handle, and a pour spout. That's exactly right, Maggie. The best way to measure wet ingredients is to set the measuring cup level on the counter and bend down to read the meniscus line. What's the mansucus line? It's called the meniscus line. When you look at the liquid in a measuring cup at eye level, you can see that it isn't perfectly flat. The level of the liquid dips just a little bit in the middle, creating a bend or arc. The meniscus line is the bottom of that arc, and that's where we want to measure from to be as accurate as possible. Wow, I never knew that. That's so cool. I would probably use the camera on my tablet to zoom in for this step, Andrea. Oh, really? 
Do you want to tell our listeners about how? Sure. Like I said earlier this season, listeners, I'm visually impaired. Legally, I'm blind. So, in order to see something like the lines on a measuring cup, I would use the camera on my tablet to zoom in and make the numbers bigger and easier for me to see. I also have a measuring cup and set of measuring spoons at home that have really large writing on them. The letters and numbers are raised, which means they are 3D, and I can feel them and know what they are. That's awesome. Some of our young chefs at home may even use a kitchen scale. That's the most accurate way to measure both dry and liquid ingredients, and sometimes the easiest. Well, thanks for sharing all that with us, Maggie, and thanks for teaching today's segment. Thanks for helping me teach the young chefs at home today, Andrea. We'll see you next week for Maggie's Cooking Corner. Wait, what? This is how to check. Bye, Andrea. Thanks again. <laughs> Bye, everybody. See you next week for more how-to time. Whichever. I'm open. <laughs> well, that was our last segment for the day. I guess we might not be able to. Knock, knock. Mitt Romney here. Mitt Romney? Dad? Mitzi, your dad is Mitt Romney? Not like the Mitt Romney. It's actually a very common name for oven mitts. <laughs> Hi, Mitzi. Surprise. I signed up to take the tour of the office with you. Your special guest? <laughs> I am. I figured you might get nervous if you knew ahead of time that I was coming. Oh, well, it's good to see you, Dad. Thanks for coming to support my side hustle. It looks like today is just going to be you, me, and Maggie here on the tour. Actually, since the episode is about over, I'd love to join too, Mitzi. Really? Of course. But you know this office pretty well by now, Molly. I know, but it would be great to hear about it from your perspective, Mitzi. Yeah, the nicest. All right, friends, let's get going. We're going to start in the general kitchen, which is just down the hall here. Okay, cool. I'm just going to use my white cane for the walk over there. Oh, how rude of me. Do you need any help? Oh, no, thank you. I'm fine. No, please, I insist. Here, let me help guide you down the hallway. I'm fine, really. Oh, no, I won't take no for an answer. That's all right. I understand that you're coming from a kind place, but I really do not need help. Yeah, Dad, Maggie has been blind for most of her life. She knows how to get around. No problem. Oh, oh, goodness. I'm sorry. It's okay. Like I said, I know you were just trying to be nice. Don't worry about it. But I get myself to work every day. I know what I'm doing. It's actually really important to remember to ask if someone needs your help before you help them, regardless of whether they are disabled or not. And if they say that they don't need help, you should believe them. That's true, Maggie. Helping people is a great thing. And if someone needs help, it is kind to stop and help them. But we don't want to assume someone needs help just because they are disabled. And we definitely don't want to touch someone or start helping them without asking for their permission first. It'll be much easier for me to get down this hallway by myself than it would be for you to try and help me. I got it. Thanks for taking the time to explain that to me. No problem, Mitt. Well, should we begin the tour? Actually, before we do, maybe we can finish up this episode first. Ah, good idea, Molly. Well, listeners, we have reached the end of today's episode. That's right, but we'll be back with another buoyant episode next time. We'll be floating by some science in our pressing questions segment, followed by something that really rocks in our wild card. 
And remember, at the end of the season, we'll be using all of our ingredients in a very special mystery recipe to cook together. Can you guess what it is yet? So far, we've talked about water, brown sugar, walnuts, oats, crisped rice cereal, dried apricots, and dried cranberries. If you love Mystery Recipe, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. That way you won't miss an episode. And feel free to leave us a review. We love reading them. Until then, keep Keep on on cooking. cooking! Mystery Recipe is hosted by me, Mitzi, and I am a starfruit, and Molly Birdbaum, who is a honey crisp apple. Chad Chennai is a writer and producer. He is a kumquat. Andrea Vavjan is a kanepa, and Katie O'Hara is a lemon, and they are both contributing writers on our show. Audio services are provided by Ultraviolet Audio, with sound design supervision by Matt Boynton. He's a nectarine. Scoring, sound design, and mixing by Chester Guazda, a banana. And additional engineering by Eric Gorman, a raspberry. Jonathan Roberts composed our theme music, and Jonathan is a mangosteen. Our director of post-production is Hen Margolis. She is a pomegranate. Our director of production is Diane Knox, who is also a dragon fruit. Fact-checking by Julia Arwin, a watermelon. Our executive producer is Caitlin Kelleher, and she's a blueberry. Jack Bishop is the chief creative officer of America's Test Kitchen. He's a mango. David Nussbaum is our CEO, and he's also a raspberry. Special thanks to our senior science editor, Paul Adams, executive editor, Kristen Sargianis, executive food editor, Susanna McFerrin, art director, Gabby Hominoff, Deputy Food Editor, Afton Cyrus. Associate Editors, Andrea Vavjan, Katie O'Hara, and Tess Berger. Editorial Assistant, Julia Arwin. Photo Test Cook, Ashley Stoyanov. Test Cook, Faye Yang. And Managing Producer, Yumi Araki. Special thanks to Lighthouse for the Blind and Visually Impaired of San Francisco. They provide training on all the skills people who are blind or have low vision need to set themselves up for success. Their specialists can train you to use the access technology for your needs, train you on how to use a cane and get around independently, and teach you the skills to manage daily tasks and much more. Visit www.lighthouse-sf.org for more information or call them at 415-431-1481. This episode featured the voices of Kira O'Sullivan, Nefertiti Matos Olivares, and Kevin Pang. Thanks again to our sponsor, Driscoll's. Mystery Recipe is a production of America's Test Kitchen Kids. So, this is the general kitchen where all of our wonderful test cooks develop the recipes for our cookbooks, TV shows, websites, and podcasts. Hi, friends! Wow, so many ovens! Yes, there are 15 ovens in this kitchen alone. And here is the walk-in freezer where Meg and I practice ice skating. Yippee! Should we show them a quick few moves? Yes, we've been working on a pairs routine. Care to see? Absolutely. Hi, grown-ups. I wanted to tell you a little bit about our newsletter. 
If you love the fun food content we share on Mystery Recipe, then sign up today for our ATK Kids newsletter to receive even more recipes, activities, and stories from me straight to your inbox. As a mom of two, I always try to include things that are important to my family, and it's a great way to hear about all the new things we are cooking up at ATK. Plus, every new email added will be entered for a chance to win three free ATK Kids books for toddlers through teens. We'll draw 10 winners every month while the promotion lasts, and we have some great books available all the time. Head to atkkids.com newsletter to sign up today for your chance to win. 